0: So I then um, thought, well, I'm going to share my knowledge on debt law because there's a GFC going on. There's a whole lot of people in debt. So I just focused on adding value that way in a, a new paradigm. So I wrote books for people about levelling the paying field. Um, and yeah, from there, I then um, had this vision that ultimately was realised of building the DG
1: Institute.
2: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Dominic Grubisier, practicing lawyer, property investor, developer and founder of the DG Institute. All full of twists and turns and ups and downs. She shares many vibrant stories from an inspiring law journey to debt and despair to making a million dollars from one single deal by signing some papers. Grabicia is a woman of many talents with property development being just one of them. From an early age, she had big dreams and while some of them didn't quite pan out, others launched her to become the go-to legal expert when it comes to buying distressed properties. Featured in print and television media across the country, she still finds time to develop property, write educational books and help others to grow and protect their wealth.
1: Most of the things that I do relate to educating and empowering others around property. I formed the DG Institute which is a a vision that I had to be a one-stop shop for property people so that they could get all the professional services that they needed as well as the knowledge and education to do things better and keep raising the bar. So that involves me flying around the country, educating at live events and as well as um, online and running a team of professionals to meet everybody's property needs. The DG Institute was only founded two years ago, but I have personally been educating and in the property space since 2000. 2009, it's just that I finally got all my ducks in a row um, with the vision that I wanted to go it alone and that happened two years ago. Before, I was just more a one-man band, just um, teaching my methods, but I did that through other platforms, so promoters and other marketing channels and multi-speaker events and that sort of thing, but it didn't give me much scope to do what I wanted to do. I was just almost a gun for hire, turned up and delivered, um, whereas I've been able to now grow into a bigger vision.
2: Born and bred on the North Shore of Sydney. She attended schools close to home throughout her childhood. She then studied law at Sydney University as an undergrad until…
1: Went back to the Masters of Law I became a solicitor in 1994 and 1996 I went to the bar not to get drunk to be a barrister and so I've always lived and worked in Sydney. I actually didn't ever have any passion to be a lawyer. I naturally did quite well at school and the HSC. and But at, straight out of school, I auditioned for NIDA, National Institute of Dramatic Arts, because I really, really wanted to be an actress. But they knocked me back, and so I was bitter and twisted that I, I couldn't have my A dream. So then I just went and studied law, because there was a show on telly at the time called L.A. Law and they swanned around in little suits and I thought, well, it's not acting, but it's kind of like acting. You do a performance, there's a judge, there's a jury, they listen and um, and um I just thought that that was something that I would like and I didn't actually like it so much, the studying part of law, but when I got through it at the end, I liked the practicing of law and the reality of it. Never been a big one for formal education.
2: Throughout her three-year arts law degree, she enrolled in additional subjects that piqued her interest including acting and archaeology. Unfortunately, her dreams of becoming the first female Indiana Jones came crashing down before they could even begin.
1: I thought it would be like Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it wasn't. It was just looking at old Greek pots and and trying to date them and things like that. So I just really hated all of that. So uh, I liked, um, I still liked acting and drama and that sort of thing. So I took, I did an honours year in English literature, but you just had to do a thesis and you could do that remotely. So I I travelled, I went to Europe and backpacked for a year between the arts degree and the law degree. Then you, you went and did another two years it got in a different campus, and that was pure law. So my my law, uh, law degree actually took six years when it should have taken five.
2: Still, one extra year. I mean, it, it's not uncommon because even people in in medical field becoming a doctor takes a lot longer than you know six or seven years to even get to where they are. So you know, law isn't too bad when you compare compare it to that. I guess and. Um yeah. So, after you completed your degree, what did you do after that?
1: Got a job as a solicitor. Um, I The LA law thing didn't pan out. I thought that I could get a litigation job, but none of the big firms that did litigation wanted to hire me. So, I just ended up taking a job with a suburban solicitor, like in a back room at Chatswood, doing um, was the soul destroying work, debt collection on repossessed motor vehicles. So, all I did day in, day out was just bankrupt people. Um, so, at the end of two years, I just had to slap myself about the face and say, What are you doing, Warren? And I also wanted to pay back everyone who I thought had been mean to me by not letting me, you know, be the litigator I wanted to be. So, I just thought, Well, bugger you all, I'm just going to do it anyway. So, I just went straight to the bar, which is probably a no-no in the system. You kind of have to um, do your time as a solicitor for at least 10, 15 years, get contacts, get experience and the journey to the bar should be something that you graduate to when you're older and you're, you're financially sound because you don't make money in your first year and you need to have a whole network of contacts of people to give you the work. So you should have a, a stable of solicitors that you've built up along the way um, with the your experience behind you, but I just went and did it anyway with nothing.
2: Could you, firstly, for listeners who don't know what bar is, explain, is that an acronym for for something in the legal industry?
1: When you're a barrister, they call it the bar. So, um, yeah, it's, well, the New South Wales Bar Association is um, the body that controls or that regulates barristers. Mm -hmm.
2: Ah, okay. That's great to know. So you went straight for that, and how did that progress? Did you, yeah, how did you go for that?
1: I did really well at that in a relatively short period of time. I was just, uh, I think I like better. Um, doing something I love and um, being able to be my own boss and do it alone. Um, I probably didn't work well as a square pen in a round hole in employment for those two years as a solicitor. But as a barrister, I could just start with a blank canvas and I was just very, very focused on being the best I could be. And because I had no work, um, because no one would brief me, I used to wear my robes every day because they actually cost $10,000. It was all that I had in the world um, to become a barrister. When I graduated law, the Law Society gave us a gold um and a mastercard and it had a $10,000 credit limit on it and it was um mastercard just said you'll be rich one day as a lawyer so here's some credit knock yourself out so i went and whacked all the robes and the gear on that card so the wig is horsehair and the robes are silk and i looked the part so i used to put on my drag every day and I'd go up to the Supreme Court and I'd just swan around the corridors and I had this theory that people would give me work if I looked the past because I thought that they'd just think, well, she's here every day suited and booted, everyone else is briefing her, she must be gone and it never happened. So with the time I had on my hands every day in the early years, I just sat at the back of the courtrooms and watched the really good guys at their craft like the top senior counsel and I just learned by osmosis, I just soaked it all up and just I was working 18-hour days. I'd work for free if they'd throw me a bow just to prove myself um, to be able to get the runs on the board. So just through sheer tenacity and blood, sweat and tears, I was able to claw my way to the top of my game at the bar.
2: She stayed there at the top until the late 90s or early 2000s where the catalyst for change was suddenly thrust upon her
1: they changed the area of law that I had developed into, they changed the rules and the laws in New South Wales so that it it became a statutory regime. So basically what they said is we don't need barristers to fight these sort of cases. Let's just codify it all in a set of laws and that can be the written law. There'll be no litigation around this. Lawyers can just um, make reference to the statutes and that can be the end of it. So it meant that a whole a um, lot of barristers were out of work and they all immediately went to other areas and tried to specialise because you're much better if you specialise. I always say focus stands for follow one course until successful. So I just focused and focused on one area of law so I could be the specialist and get to the top of my game there. Um, It's like a magnifying glass. If you hold it really still over one thing you want, the rays of the sun will converge and start a fire. Most people wander willy-nilly around looking for the next shiny thing and they they don't succeed. So um, what I... What had happened was where all my focus had come to nothing and I could either go back and grow my expertise in another area of law um, or I could reinvent myself and I chose the latter. I just couldn't have the whole journey all over again in law.
2: From what you're you're explaining to me before, um, you really stayed on course using the FOCUS method which is fantastic. That's a great acronym and uh, you pretty much got to the best of the best. What happened from there onwards?
0: On the side, I'd been doing property uh, as well as law, just as a property investor. So, once when you focus, things happen. I started to make money. My accountant said you need to negatively gear. So I just went and bought a little studio apartment and um, I bought it as an investment and I just fluked it. Um, I bought it. It was near where my chambers were as a barrister in the CBD of Sydney and I bought this studio, first person in the door, first um, first open for inspection. I'm very fire-ready aim type person and the agent had done that usual thing of – getting a whole lot of people together and um, showing us all in one inspection and it was so small it was like about I don't know 10 square meters or something ridiculous and we were all squashed in but all I saw was views I could see like a little spot of blue right in the distance and I thought oh my god it's got water views I have to have it so I just got immediately emotional so I ran over to the agent because I panicked I thought everyone in there is going to make an offer and so I said how much and he said well they're looking for about 160,000 I said, done, here's a check, $16,000, 10% deposit. I'll sign an unconditional contract, get everyone out of my apartment. And um, he, um, so, I then went to my conveyancing solicitor and when he looked at it, he said, right. Um, and and I, I changed my mind, getting emotional. I just thought, I'm going to live here. This is my home now. I'm going to live in my little studio right near work. I'm moving out from mum and dad. And um, so, when I, I'd been to like IKEA on the way to the solicitors and picked out my bookcase and my bed and everything.
2: Things were going well, maybe even too well. The next thing her solicitor said to her brought it crushing down. But it wasn't all bad.
0: And then um, the solicitor said, have, "He said, right. So you're a barrister, are you?" I said, "Yeah, that's right." He said, "Did you actually read this contract before you signed it?" I said, "No." And he said, "Right. Well, you're wanting to live here. I don't think that'll happen. If you read the contract, it comes with a lease in it, and there's a tenant in there, and um, they're there for two years." I said, "Oh, that's okay. Look, it was really meant to be an investment, and it's negatively geared." And he said, "Well, there's your second problem. You paid one hundred and sixty thousand, and it's rented out on a two-year lease for two hundred and eighty-five dollars a week. So." I was Actually, a bit positive, and it was a happy mistake to make on my first ever property deal, and it just hooked me on property. Um, And when so, I went back to that agent and I just said, hi I don't know if you remember me I bought that one he said oh pet how could I forget you I've never ever had anyone first open first person in the door and offer within five minutes for the full asking price unconditional contract and you're a barrister like I thought you guys were smart and you know with property you can actually offer less and I was like well I would have paid more and he said no good on you you're Johnny on the spot it was a divorce situation it was price to sell and they had met the market to move it and you put your money where your mouth is and I love that. So from there, I had a little epiphany about buying undermarket distressed properties and because of my knowledge of law and the legal system, I knew – when people had to meet the market like that and I know it's the holy grail of property and it's like looking for a needle in a haystack but that's what I did. I applied my focus to just looking for those undermarket deals and that was my little formula and I did that um, on the side all through my 20s um, just doing property deals and um, when I reached um just pushing thirty, I moved to the next level, and I bought a Mervac one off the plan. And when um I had to segue out of law, um, I sold uh, on sold the Mervac property and did really, really well, like just made a million dollars from buying well off the plan. Um, and I did it with a deposit bond. So that's when I thought that's Part of the reason I didn't go back to specializing in a different area of law, I thought, wow, I did that on the side without any focus. What if I really focused on property? So then I just turned to full-time property.
2: For all the parents out there, especially parents of teenagers, you'll be well aware that kids know everything. Young Rubisio was no exception.
0: I think, you know, they say when the. are um, Student is ready. The teacher appears. Um, my parents were always big in property, but I was never interested. So every Christmas, my father would give me, you know, um, Think and Grow Rich or Robert Kiyosaki and. Um, rich dad, poor dad, and he'd write things, you know, little inscriptions in the start of the book. And I would just think, why are you wasting your money, man? I'm just not interested in any of this. And I, I remember they tried to get me in off the plans when I was earning money. And they'd say, you know, come and look at this. We know the agent. You can buy a one better in here. The market's going up. And I was just like, why would I spend $300,000? That's so much money. So I definitely... Wasn't interested from my parents' um, persuasion. I was almost worked the opposite way where I resisted, and it was just having. That initial success on that divorce property, and I just that was without my parents' help. It was almost in defiance of them. No, I'm not buying one of you stupid off the plans, I'm going to do it myself and I'm going to buy it in the city because they'd always said never buy in the CBD. And um, so then when that worked, um, I, I think I caught the bug myself, and then I just sought out other mentors and, and my own books to read. Um, so, yeah, probably not because of my parents, I'm um, probably. Despite my parents, I did it.
2: I love it—the <laughs> rebel in, in, in all of us who are young. So, <laughs> and what what kind of like uh, professions were your parents in? Just our curiosity. Oh,
0: would you believe, Tyrone? I'm embarrassed—they're both lawyers.
2: Sometimes we need to make our own mistakes to be able to learn and grow. Despite lawyer blood running through Grabeius veins. She learnt this the hard way.
0: I probably have made every mistake in the book and made it in a big way. Um, and I think it's because I'm a fire ready aim person. But um, one thing that happened was um, I had a client who was doing well in property development. So he was buying out in Kellyville, which was sort of a greenfields area um, in Sydney at the time. So it was all farmlands, and they were uh, they'd rezoned it and people were subdividing. And I did the legal work for him. Um, on that site and then I was interested in how he did it because I saw the profits he made so I asked him to um connect me with the agent who sold in the land and so I just said to the agent if anything comes up like that again or you can get me in on anything like you did with this guy can you let me know and he was like yeah and then a few days later he rang me and he said look I might have an opportunity for you I'll get this guy to ring you so this guy rang me and um Anyway, when we talked, it turned out he was selling like an off-the-plan at Ballina and I said, "I'm oh, no, sorry, there must be some confusion I was wanting to develop and I was looking for land and he said, oh, well, you know, I'm a friend of Danny's and I just thought, he said, you were up for any opportunity, this is a big opportunity and I tried to push him away but he was like, oh, I've booked my flight to Sydney and I've hired a car so I'm going to come out and see you and I just said, no, I really don't want it and he said, no, 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 it's fine, like at least you could do is give me a cup of tea, it's already settled now. Anyway, um, I just thought, oh, I'll give this guy a cup of tea and get rid of it. Anyway, long story short, I bought an off-the-plan dual-key apartment for $850,000 at Ballina. I don't know what I was thinking. I just fell for all of the... um, just the sales talk and the it was it had fallen through but the prices had gone up and it was worth a million and the developer didn't know if they put it back on for a million but because I was a friend of a friend he'd try and get it for me at the old price of 8.50 and then you can come up and see it and we'll babysit your kids and we'll take you out on a boat and you can eat prawns and I just felt so incredibly obliged <laughs> that I, I signed on the dotted line so that was a big mistake.
2: Ouch. And what happened after that?
0: Well, the market fell in the interim. It wasn't um, going to be what it had planned to be. Um, Banks weren't lending on those holiday sort of rental scenarios. And just fortunately for me and my legal
2: background,
0: I was able to find a loophole and a technicality and get out of it and get my deposit back. Yeah, I was lucky with my
2: knowledge. Wow, that would have been a disaster if that happened because obviously, something like that is hard to sort of get rid of I guess or sell down the track.
0: Absolutely, yeah, that would have ruined us. It was something else that ruined us a bit later on so we dodged that bullet at least.
2: Because she had done so well and dodged so many bullets along the way, she had gained a false sense of security. Even her worst deals were turning profits, leading her to feel invincible.
0: The more um, successful I became, the more bulletproof I thought I was. And so we just, um, at a time when banks were just lending so easily and there were low DOC and no DOC loans and anyone with a pulse could get credit, banks were just throwing money at us. So we were just buying and buying and buying and buying. And I had entered the property game um, in and up market and I probably never look like in my adult life I'd never seen a recession or a bad times or anything like that so I, I thought that property markets only ever went up and I thought property was a licence to print money I thought all you need to do is get the bank to convince you to get a loan and then you grow a portfolio and because banks would let us refinance, we'd renovate, we'd create extra equity and then we'd pull out that equity and we'd roll it into another deal. So, we just spread ourselves so thin that we just weren't ready um, when the GFC hit and and what happened to us was we had a development site and we had finance, we had everything ready to go and then the bank pulled the loan from us and we were so dependent on lines of credits and banks banks and everything and we had a a situation where a few things collided at once Um, but at the end of the day we just had no wiggle room at all so when uh, you know expect the unexpected they say when a couple of unexpected things happened together. It just caused a knock-on effect that just put us in a total tailspin and we lost everything. We were millions and millions of dollars in debt because, I mean, leverage is great in property when it magnifies your profits, but it can also have a backfire effect and, and magnify your losses.
2: Wow, gosh. So how did you feel at that point in time?
0: Oh, that was rock bottom for me. Um, So at at the time when it hit, we were just reactionary. So it was just fight or flight, adrenaline. Um, We just had to take three kids out of private schools. We had to just do whatever had to be done, sell things really quickly but rock bottom for me was a moment of realisation when the dust had settled was that we were literally homeless and what had taken me 20 years of blood sweat and tears to build up slowly I just lost in the blinking of an eye and we were living with my parents-in-law and I mean we were very lucky that they would have us in but it was also um, we were in a fold-out lounge um, in the The um, living room, and you know, watching Seven Brides for Seven Brothers on a Saturday night with my father. I thought it was just very, very dark days, and I just beat myself up. I felt like such a failure, and I felt so incredibly guilty that I'd failed, and and just I felt disgraced. Um, So that was that was the lowest point.
2: Although she was at rock bottom, she knew this wasn't the end of her journey. Through sheer necessity, she shifted her perspective and picked herself up.
0: There's just only so long you can sit around in your mother in law's lounge room and in your pajamas crying all day. I just, um, I, I think I adopted a, a glass half full approach, and that paradigm shift made me realize that, um, okay, what it is what it is. I've lost everything, but what can I do now? So I was solution-focused rather than problem-orientated. And I I couldn't go back to law. I couldn't go back to property. It was the GFC by then, so no-one was lending, no-one was buying. I still had faith in property. Um, because uh, it had done so well for me. So I I identified the problem as my reckless behaviour and my disregard for markets and my lack of knowledge in that sense. But what I did have in my favour was my legal knowledge and my knowledge of debt because I was actually dealing with my own debt at the coalface and I was um, trading my way through it, just treading water, dealing with creditors. And so I I put my focus on debt law, which is an area of law that few specialists with my level of knowledge ever look at just because there's no money in helping people in debt. So, no one ever focuses on that area of law. And But for me, it was self-interest, obviously. And then I was looking for a way to make money without having to go back to law and without being able to do property anymore. So, I um, started looking at internet marketing, um, just probably out of desperation, if I'm honest. And um, what was, um, I started going to seminars for that. And what, I was focused on was, okay, there's a new way of communication. There's a new way of sharing knowledge, like the old way of, you know, paying for solicitors at an hourly rate with billable hours and everything. That's a way of the past. And the internet is about sharing knowledge. And so I then um, thought, well, I'm going to share my knowledge on debt law because there's a GFC going on. There's a whole lot of people in debt. So I just focused on adding value that way in a a new paradigm. So I wrote books for people about leveling the playing field um, and yeah, from there, I then um, had this vision that ultimately was realized of building the DG Institute.
2: She put her strengths to work using both her knowledge and kindness to help others in debt for free.
0: They were in debt themselves, so they couldn't really pay for it. But I then saw opportunities just by working and, and being there. I saw opportunities of how banks were repossessing properties, how the whole industry worked. And I realised that the system um, was ineffective like that they'd never had sort of the repossessions and the the market that they had um, after the global financial crisis and I got to be up close and personal with that so I um, realised that there were other ways of transacting property apart from just going to an agent and buying at auction um, because I saw the the um, aftermath of the property market um, with the global financial crisis and I also um, put my legal knowledge into play then in property in a different way because I didn't have the money to actually go to the bank and get it well have bad credit after things went wrong for me so I, I did my credit score meant I couldn't get a loan so I started to channel my knowledge into things like property development where I could get properties on using options um, without needing bank finance. And I could add value through my knowledge of zoning and getting development approvals and that sort of thing. And that helped me build wealth back faster, looking at distressed properties and property development and transacting properties without needing bank finance. Um, And I was able to, what took me 20 years to build up and then lose, I needed to be able to make back a lot quicker but without the money, um, to, without having to have loans to do it and without having the luxury of another 20 years to do it slowly brick by brick.
2: The learning and growing never stops through the good times and bad. Turning our focus to the good times, a real tipping point for her was when she went from law into property full time.
0: I reached a glass ceiling in law, not from being a woman but just I couldn't work any harder and I couldn't, Do any more to increase my earning capacity because, as lawyers, as barristers, you're self employed, and the law is that you you can't have a company, you can't have employees, you're just a gun for hire. So, you're selling yourself your skill as a litigator. It's a bit like a a specialist. Um, So, just as there's GPs and specialists in medicine, and if the GP can help you, then he will, but if it's serious, he'll refer you on to a specialist. That's what solicitors are to barristers. So, I was. Was a specialist but you can't the heart surgeon can't say oh here's the work experience boy because I want to go out and you know look at properties today it's it's your skill and that was the same with me so I I shackled myself to that one finite resource that everyone shares and that's time so I I had the same 24 hours in the day as everyone else I was working about 18 of them because I really was working so hard and you can, like, no matter how good I got, I could keep raising my hourly rate and I could raise my daily brief fee of how much people would pay to engage me but it would always be finite because I was selling my time and then I realised that I'd made seven figures in an off-the-plan property that wasn't my money, wasn't my time, wasn't bound to anything Um, and that's when I realised that the possibility of exponential and unlimited potential in property um, as opposed to working.
2: Coming back, we turned to the million dollar Mervac deal. What started out as a business transaction for Grabisia ended up being so much more, both professionally and personally.
0: I actually had clients who um, wanted me as a lawyer to go to an open for inspection. Um, so Mervac um, had. Um, a site at Walsh Bay, so down near the rocks in Sydney, and it was an old industrial pier and they were turning it into luxury apartments. And they knew they had something special because there were marina berths that the council had given them permission to have boat moorings for um, the more expensive apartments. And that was really, really rare in Sydney. So my clients came to me and said, we are VIP berth clients. We've been invited to the pre-launch. And it was like you know, lining up in the streets for I don't know, tickets to a Madonna concert or something. People were camping overnight to be the first in the door to buy these apartments. And Mervac's deal was that um, they gave you, they opened the doors, you had to be there with your lawyer on the day to sign away your rights. So in New South Wales, if you're buying property unconditionally, you'd normally get a cooling off period. And um, if you're going to waive that cooling off, your lawyer has to sign for you. So they asked me to come on a Sunday um, to sign for them because they said, we want to buy about five of these properties because they're just so finite um, and special and we just need you there. So, when I got through the door, it was just like a feeding frenzy and there were all the agents there and there were just red salt stickers on everything and I just thought I've got to have one of these. I got caught up in the excitement but I didn't have um, the money to do it. So I'd done property before. It's just that I was playing at the $200,000 level. These things started at $1.2 million. So it's just a million short and I'm thinking how can I how can I make this happen? And um, I, there was a guy that I... uh, I wasn't even dating him. I'd been on a first date with him the night before, but I really liked him and we got on well over dinner and he just really liked property and I liked property and I just thought, well, I'll just see if he's interested. So I rang him up and said, I had a really good time last night and do you want to buy an apartment? So he could have thought that I was psycho um, and a stalker and got scared away but he did say, I'll come and have a look and he got out and he had a checkbook in his hand and I just thought, oh my God, it's happening so fast.
2: Everything was falling together so well, very similar to the CBD studio apartment. What could possibly go wrong?
0: Anyway, long story short, he he had a different thing in mind. I thought we'd be buying one together and that's how we'd get the money. But he just said, bugger you, I'm buying my own. So he bought one and then I, not to be beaten, I um, went to a guy selling deposit bonds so that Mervac had organised that on the day because as a developer, they were prepared to accept a deposit bond, which is like a bank guarantee or an insurer that will... Um, put up the surety for your 10% deposit because I didn't have the $120,000. Um, so, but I had $7,000, which it cost for them to issue this bond. So when I got my foot on one apartment, I asked if I could have a mooring and they said they were only for the top floor penthouses. And then they just said, look, all right, if we, the Mervac agent said, look, don't tell anyone, I'm not meant to offer them to the little peasant apartment."
2: Despite her apartment, she was able to buy mooring with another deposit bond, setting her back $120,000. However, she soon found herself gaining something invaluable.
0: Um, who I'd been dating um, kind of had to marry me after that because we had neighbouring apartments and like when it was built in four years time we just felt it would be awkward if, if things weren't amicable so that kind of united us and then um, we ended up we had three children under two so like within a couple of years our lives had changed and these uh, off the plans were going to take four years to build so ultimately we onsold his apartment but we kept mine thinking well, well if we settle on this one and move in and at home we won't pay capital gains tax and also it will be far more attractive if the market because the market was just going up and up and we thought um, when when people can actually see something tangible and the views and it's not just a hole in the ground they'll pay more so before we even got to put it on the market um, a a, the Mervac agent came to us and he said I've got this investor and he's very very wealthy he's just jetted in from Hong Kong he wants one of the moorings in this block and he said but the thing is the strata rules say you have to own an apartment to have the right to buy a mooring he doesn't want an apartment he just wants the mooring but he gets that he has to own an apartment so he selected you because you literally have the worst apartment in the block to come with a mooring and um, he said but this is how he rolls he just is a numbers man. He said, I've been doing business with him for 20 years. When he wants something, he refines his numbers and he only makes one offer. So he said, I'm about to make you an offer. If you don't accept it, this guy will be on an eight o'clock flight back to Hong Kong. And they offered us, uh, he offered us 2.166 million. So we just, jumped on it and um, between Kevin, my husband's apartment, we'd sold that for $250,000 more than he secured it for off the plan and with this other one we made over $1.2 on that whole development. So that was – I mean – with hindsight, that was beginner's luck, but at the time we just thought we had the mightiest touch and we could do no wrong. That would have been 1999. He on sold it a few years later, so I thought that guy had made a big mistake, but he actually made a profit on it. So he would have bought it from us, I think, um, what 2002, 2003, and then he on um, sold it. Um, before the global financial crisis for a small profit. but I think now it would be it would have to be threes or fours. It was like a two-bedroom you know higher end development, but nothing magnificent um, but it's just the Sydney market. Maybe not maybe not fours. maybe I'm exaggerating.
2: From there she got into options and property development. While she had done it as a lawyer for others, drafting up agreements, she had the know-how but had never done it herself.
0: Our first development wasn't actually an option, it was a um, just a, a splitter block um, where we um, just got a, pro, a A.V. Jennings, just a project builder, to take it through council and put a, another property on the back. So it was an infill situation in a, like a baby boomers downsize area where people – we just built for that market and we renovated the front block and sold it off. But that it, even that little deal yielded us about $400,000 profit. So we realised that, okay, the answer is the, the bigger – um, rewards are in property development if we can just manage the risk around it. Um, and so then um, and, and especially right now, options are in a cooling market, um, options are more it's, it's more of a, a buyer's market and sellers are more open um, to being negotiable.
2: A yield of $400,000 is more than just a little deal. She lets us in on how she came across it and how she put it together to be successful.
0: Oh, well, that was um, blood, sweat, and tears, that one. So it was before the, the internet was as advanced as it was and, and that the sharing of knowledge, there weren't as many tools available. So I just got very specific about it. So I think I was talking about the property developer who was my client who did really well out at Kellyville. So I, um, I, I modelled myself off him and I was looking at what he was doing and um, so I ch- he was just an area expert so I reverse engineered his process and I just chose an area and we were northern beaches of Sydney and so we at the time so we chose Wheel Heights which was a kind of less salubrious area, more working class, um, sort of near Coleroy but not not as nice. And um, so I just really, really got to know that area, I got to know physically, went into council, and of course you can do this all online these days, but physically went in, pulled out the massive maps of colour coding, looked at zonings and looked at what was zoned what where. So I knew that um, – and so, so the council had identified um, – this suburb and this region in their planning as a what they call infill so there's greenfields is like like Kellyville, like I said, it's all just farmland and they've said, okay, the growth corridors are moving out that way. We're going to, with our urban planning, we're going to build infrastructure out there and we'll allow smaller blocks so farms can be subdivided off. Infill means um, where they say, well, okay, not everybody is going to want to live that far out. There is still a need for dwellings closer in already built up urban areas but demographics have changed so much so that people who 50 years ago when you know it wasn't common to have divorce when kids when people got married at 21 and started their own homes and their own families now there's a lot more demand for a lot smaller homes like people are staying single for longer um, there's split families and it's just very normal.
2: They had identified this area was mainly inhabited by baby boomers who no longer needed their large homes, but didn't want to leave the suburb. Luckily, there was a solution.
0: So they zoned certain parts. So they'd said from number 35 to number 85 Smith Street, um, we'll allow subdivision, and it was you know had to have certain frontage and certain land size and setbacks. And so I got myself really really familiar with the rules and the requirements. And I looked at all the colour coding. I physically walked the streets and drove around. I went to open for inspections every Saturday and listened to what agents were. Um, what, who was turning up, what the market was wanting. And I went round to the agents and said, if anything comes up, you know, if any of these numbers in these streets come up for sale or anyone wants to sell, let me know. No one did. But I was driving round one Sunday because I always just, I, I was very, very focused. And there was a for sale sign outside one of the houses that I wanted so I rang the agent because I'd only just spoken to him that way like one of the agents and he said yeah yeah sure I'll let you know so I rang him up and said but you know it's, it's he said oh has the sign going up on that already oh I didn't know and he said um yeah that that's an old lady the family that she needs to go into a home they're wanting a quick sale so they you know I didn't realize that it had gone up so quickly so we were able to get we could move really quickly unconditional contract short settlement and so we negotiated that one well um and then we um, kept the, her house that was there, and we did a little renovation ourselves. And we sold off the front block because we had no money, and we were so risk averse. We we needed to cut down the loss, so we sold off the front block, um, and that paid that. Basically paid us back, so we were debt free on the back block, and we um, got we just went out to Homeworld because we'd never done it before. And the builder, um, the well, the AV Jennings knew the council knew the zoning knew the area, so they got it all approved and they built it um, up to lock-up point. So I think we bought these numbers of, um vague, but we we it had a two in front of it that we paid for it um, back in those days. We sold it for the front block for. 290 so people weren't there wasn't much of a premium for a bigger block in that area just a weird market you didn't get much more from having an 800 square meter block than a 500 square meter block so um didn't matter so much that we cut off the backyard and then the rest was profit Um, and we sold the back house for um 400 odd, um, which yeah meant at the end of the day when everything was put through the sieve and stamp duty and everything else, um, it was 400 odd thousand profits.
2: That's fantastic. So to clarify, when you say split a block, is that the equivalent word of subdivision as well?
0: Yes, sorry. So I'd split one block into two.
2: And and that seems to be a, a good starting point, right? For, say, a, a person who wants to get into property development to make some profit from that rather than jumping in and building like a four, or five, or ten pack townhouse or unit apartments.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Because they're hedging their bets and they can, you know, if something goes wrong, which it inevitably does, um, you can, you still got a property that you can rent out. Or for me, we still sold off the first block. So we weren't carrying a Lot of debt, Um, and if you can delegate, I I find property developing actually easier and safer because um, even though it it sounds counterintuitive, um, not many people do it because it's perceived risky and you need it's perceived that you need expertise, which just isn't the case. Um, And everyone's piles into residential lending and flipping properties like they've seen the block and they you know and and there's a lot of competition so you it's harder to buy well when you're competing with everybody else but there's not much competition in the development space. You're also not bound by APRA. So the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority um, controls lending and credit um, in our markets and and how banks can lend. And right now, they're really targeting residential lending. So this idea of responsible lending and banks have to be really careful who they lend to and how they lend. And what that has meant is that it's really getting harder and harder to get a loan. They're cutting back interest-only loans. So it's like a game of musical chairs. Everyone's on interest-only loans because they've all been speculating in a hot market, but they only last for five years. So as those loans fall due, um, banks aren't going to offer interest-only again. So people will be having to pay down principal and interest, but they can't afford to on the current lending criteria. So that's what we're seeing a a lot more distress as people who Bought and borrowed when times were good in a tougher market now, can't refinance and can't pay principal and interest. Um, And in the development space, it's a different area of lending. So it's not bound by APRA, it's not residential lending, it's actually what they call commercial lending. Now, that's not commercial as in business, they call it commercial because they look at a property development venture as a business, as they would a business venture. So they're not approving you as a borrower, they're approving your deal and the profit in it.
2: And that's so true and I, I think there's also other options as well which I, I've heard about is you could also um, do joint ventures with say for example other Uh, money partners or even with the vendor and so forth so you're not risk bound exactly by APRA for example in that space which is really powerful.
0: And the profits are so much larger that there's just more of the pie to go around so that yeah, like you said, you can afford to pay more, pay money partners out, get investors on board because you're creating something that wasn't there before. It was a vacant block of now now it's five townhouses whereas if it's just a, a house that you're putting a new kitchen and bathroom in, the profits are so minimal that you end up having to do a lot of the work yourself because if you're paying trades, there's nothing left over. So just bigger pie, bigger rewards means more for everyone. It's a win-win.
2: Not one to be tied down to any particular area, she goes where the opportunities are no matter how far they are from her backyard.
0: I'll get in whatever's going. So at the moment, we're um, involved in one in Fitzroy in Melbourne and we've got one at Newport in Sydney that we're involved in and another one um, in Cairns in Queensland. Yeah, you're not bound by your local market You can and, and you can pay. So we've got project managers on the ground, obviously watching the day-to-day.
2: To get from subdivisions to developments and options, she started small.
0: The first one, we'd actually got project builders to do it. Um, And what I decided we would do, and that's the beauty of development, is that every step of the way you're adding value and someone will pay you more for that. So even if you um, secure an option on a property, um, you can then um, g- go and get a DA and you can onsell it to someone else who pay you more for it because it's got a DA and, and it's the time value of money. A developer will come in and it's like, okay, great, all I have to do is start building now. Um, so um, that even that small step will add value. You don't have to go out and build 100 apartments straight up.
2: Now that the world's a lot more savvy and the internet is so much more sophisticated than in the earlier days, she recommends and makes use of the abundance of tools available online to help with developments.
0: Poor logic. Um, but- Uh, who you've probably heard of and your listeners have heard of RP Data. So CoreLogic are an American company but they've come to Australia and they've bought up all of the the data sources in Australia when it comes to property. So they pretty much own that space and they recently bought a business called Cordell's that developers used. Um, So it's quite niche. But um, with Cordell's, it's not just for builders. Once you know what's available and what's possible, what that will tell you is I, I look at it like a gossip, like a gossipy neighbour. They've been around for a hundred years, and they know. They they tap into council, and they also look at what's happening, who's applied or inquired about development, what developments are going through, what stage they're up to, like they'll physically look and they'll update their database. And um, so you can know an area um, where, um, so for example, um, recently um, from our community, there was one at Lidcombe um, and that was the growth corridor in Sydney and what they did was, was an old service station and so they got it on an option and they... Um, paid 1% option fee. So it was – they agreed on $10 million and they paid 1% of that. So they paid 100000 But they then went to council and they had to do – don't get me wrong, they still had to do stuff and it, it cost them money on the way through. Um, so like, you know, hundreds of thousands in um, – Like soil contamination reports and all sorts of things to do with the service station. But at the end of the day, for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, they turned a an abandoned service station into something completely different. It was a DA for ninety four apartments and retail space on the bottom. And they'd been working with council. Council it was an infill area. Council wanted to see that in the area, so they wanted that sort of infrastructure there. And um, they... All these guys were doing was delivering to the council and market what it wanted, and they were then able to use Cordell's to say, "Okay, who are the developers in Lidcombe?" And I will show you this guy's just finished building 100 apartments and it's completed, or this one's halfway through. And so they were able to—it's almost like a Rolodex that you'd have if you've been in the industry for 20 years. They were able to approach them and say, "We've got this, and this is the approval," and they were—they could buy that option off them, um, and. They made um, many millions of dollars just in that. So they, I think they bought the the option was for 10 million, but they on sold it to the developer. So they they were buying it as a service station, but the developer was buying it as a DA approved site for 94 apartments and retail, and he paid 17 million.
2: How long did that process from say finding that site to say getting a DA approved take for that particular person who actually did all that legwork?
0: So, the um, option period was for 12 months, but we also had a clause in there that said that we could extend it for another six months, just in case things went wrong in council. So, they didn't pay their $100,000 option fee without knowing. So, they were kind of massaging both sides. So, they were talking to town planners at council about what was possible. In the meantime, they were talking to the owner. Um, And so, when they um, bought the option from the owner, they knew that Council was um, on board with their idea. And then they ended up doing it in 12 months. But if we needed to, we could have um, had an extension on the option for another six months, just in case. The zoning fit, though, so it was compliant. It wasn't like they were having to ask for some special exception um, and and some discretionary thing on the part of council. Um, But, yeah, they did know up front, like, is this possible? And with this zoning, you know, all things being equal, could you do this? And council, like, yep, we'd be really happy to see that as long as there's some green areas and this and that. So they knew in principle it was possible.
2: Turning to mindset, there have been a couple of books that have helped her in her darkest days, and they may not be the ones you'd expect.
0: For me, a mentor may not be a physical person. Um, it, it may be just a book that I'm reading. So I'm I'm a big reader, um, and I so I would um, read anything and everything. I'm embarrassed to, to tell you Tyrone but I'll tell you the truth. Like back in the early days, I I actually from rock bottom, um, I read um donald trump's the art of the comeback um so it was about him because he's in the guinness book of records for the greatest ever financial turnaround um and so i read the art of the comeback and then i read the art of the deal like his first book and um not that's why i'm a bit embarrassed now to say donald trump but like i would think in any situation like the ballina apartment i'd go okay so what would donald trump do now what would he do in this situation just so Like not that I could ring him up as a mentor and say what should I do but I could at least um, leverage his knowledge and and try and model myself off um, things like that but more but I have had physical um, coaches and mindset coaches so um, as um, an educator I just had a lot of blockages Uh, it's kind of a male world the property education space and speaking from the stage and and I wasn't good at it Um, so I, I actually had to go and get help with that and I first went to a just because I I don't know the lawyer in me I'm just black and white and it's okay I just need to learn to do public speaking it's different from talking to judges and juries I just have to get someone to tell me how to do stage speaking and that didn't really work or translate to me and then someone said I I saw a guy at like I was waiting to go on stage at an event and there was this guy speaking um, and he was a mindset speaker and I was listening to him thinking oh god you're good and I love everything you say so I actually said to him can you teach me how to speak? And he said, it's not about speaking. It's about what's in your head and your blockages and you're making that a self-fulfilling prophecy. So uh, he still coaches me to this day on my on my mindset.
2: Wow, that's phenomenal. Now, I'd love to know who this guy is.
0: <laughs> oh, you've probably seen him. He's been around a long time, Paul Blackburn. That's what we came to realize. I had a whole lot of baggage and Catholic guilt and everything about, um, yeah, I have had... I had massive dialogues going on in my head like while I was on stage and the lawyer in me and um, I've softened up a little bit now but you can imagine Tyrone like questions that you're asking me now like you'd be saying well how much you know tell us a bit about that deal and I'd be like oh I've got to get a non-disclosure and I can't talk about that and if I say 400,000 and it was actually 405,000 is that misleading and deceptive and you know I, I had all of that baggage following me around.
2: She did a lot of work with Blackburn to overcome her blockages, reading his books and answering his questions. As with anything else she does, it's an endless learning journey.
0: like obviously, the bigger you get, the um... You know, the more success you get, there's also an element of of downside with that. So even more recently, um, getting more into an online space, and I'm I'm starting to wanting to share a lot more knowledge and doing content marketing. And the the greater your reach, um, the also you you do get some detractors and I I had such a soft underbelly that my husband actually forbade me to read emails after nine o'clock because one night I read a bad email, like someone wrote something um, just in a service business, some um, a customer complaint, and I just took it so to heart that I'd be waking him up in the middle of the night at 2am going, hey, hey, you awake? You know how that person said that? Did you think this? Did you think that? So Paul did a lot of work with me and there's a real, I have this weakness where I need to be liked and so um, if I need to be liked then that means that um, I'm giving away some power because I can't control what people think of me. Um, But if I'm wanting that approval or some sort of verification from others, then that's a weakness because it's outside of my control. So, um, yeah, it's – been a big journey for me to even you know have a Facebook page and be online and embrace the digital age which you have to in business um, or you're going to die but for me that also means that people can write negative comments and if I've got if I don't toughen up and get a thicker skin and learn that it's okay that not everyone has to like you and you can't please all the people all the time then you know never get ahead in business.
2: What what do you think's been the best advice you've ever received?
0: Oh wow, that's a big one. I've lots and lots of gems um, along the way. Um, probably, the, if if I had to pick one, um, it would be to. Um, and this is something that someone told me very early on. It was that um, to just guard your time with your life um so um one of my it was a actually a barrister who said to me we we worry so much about losing money. But when you lose money, you can get money back again. We, we'd we be just outraged if someone stole some of our property or possessions, and yet we let people steal our time every day. And he said, you've only got 24 hours in a day. It's yours to make the most with, whatever way you can. So don't, and it comes back to being liked again. He said, he, he said, the number of people who, who just don't say no to things. And I read a quote, Warren Buffett says, um, a measure of success, successful people um, often say no to things more than ordinary people. So just learning to, to just be that focus that you can have the guts to say no, I'm sorry that doesn't suit so that your day is not reactionary.
2: As for personal habits, Gravisia credits Blackburn for what she calls her personal success routine. Which has helped her take back control of her own time.
0: I um, would often let the day invade my time, and I'd start. I kind of start my day on the back foot because the first thing I do, I'd always have good intentions to do something like I'm going to exercise, or like I'm going to set the alarm. Like at night, after you've had had eaten a meal and had a glass of wine you're feeling good but you're feeling a bit guilty I'd think right this is it tomorrow I'm up at five and I'm going to the gym or I'm doing whatever and I just set my alarm for five and then five would come and I'd just hit snooze and it was just so easy to go do I feel like it no I just really don't feel like it and then when I did wake up later on I the first thing I'd do is reach for my phone and then I'd look at emails and then I'd start answering emails and then the tail was wagging the dog because I was jumping to other people requests and demand and that my day would just sort of fall through the day without any real plan. So I've got this thing now where – My alarm goes off at five every morning and I don't know if you've read Mel Robbins, it's the five-second rule. So before my brain can even say, oh, do I feel like going for a swim? Like of course I don't feel like going for a swim at five o'clock but before that dialogue even kicks off in my head, I just go five, four, three, two, one. My feet are on the ground, I'm in the car, I'm driving to the pool and then um, swimming for me is like meditation. So every stroke I'm just counting and my brain can just, make plans, I can organize my day and then I'm in charge of the day from there because I've just set out with that intention and that's sort of my catalyst, um, my my comfort zone um, of how I launch my day.
2: Say for example, if you met yourself 10 years ago, what would you say to her?
0: I'd say hang in there. <laughs> it gets better because um, 10 years ago was a low point for us, 10 years ago was the GFC, Um you kind of don't realise it though when you're in the eye of the storm. Um, but I, um, ten years ago, I may have even given up just the little things. It just seems so overwhelming. But. Um, yeah, you, you don't need to see, see the whole staircase, only the first step so I just had to just put in, keep putting one foot in front of the other to climb out of the hole and then new opportunities um, present themselves if you just keep in motion. As they say, a body in motion stays in motion.
2: As a person who loves to inspire and work with other people, her five-year plan involves a lot of that in addition to her development journey which she plans to extend beyond just property
0: we've created, and as I was saying, getting into the, the digital space, a community of like-minded people all doing the same thing nationally. So, um, partnering with each other on deals, money partners. I've, I've One of our values um, here at DG Institute is challenge the status quo. So, it's just, I think we're living in really, really exciting times. So, um, one of the things we're doing, for example, is setting up a peer-to-peer lending platform. So, it's kind of like crowd funding for property within our our community and and that's a new area of financial technology that ASIC is behind at the moment they want Australia to be blazing a trail Um, and it's just it's like Uber was for taxis and Airbnb for hotels it's disruptive change in the banking space.
2: Thank you to Dominic Grubisier, our guest on this episode of Property Investory.